0: Good afternoon and welcome, everybody, to our uh, fifth or fifth week of this term, uh, the third meeting of our uh, Israel uh, Studies Seminar. Uh, I'm very happy to present to you our speaker today. We were hoping to have uh, both Nachshon Perez and Yuval Giovanni, who uh, have co-written the work that will be discussed uh, this afternoon, uh, but uh, Yuval Giovanni could not attend for some personal reasons. So I'm very happy to present to you his co-author, Nachshon Perez, who is an associate professor in the Department of Political Studies at bar Ilan University. Uh, Nachshon's field of uh, research include toleration, pluralism, religion and state re- relations, and uh, the rectification of past wrongs. He is the author of Freedom from Past Injustices, a critical evaluation of claims of intergenerational reparations. And he is the co-author with Yuval Giovanni of uh, Women of the World uh, Navigating Religion in Sacred Sites. You, sh- you may have seen uh, Nachshon present his work here under my predecessor, uh, Derek Penzler. And um, lately, uh, with Yuval Giovanni again, Governing the Sacred Political Toleration in Five Contested Sacred Sites, which is also the title of his uh, talk today. Uh, Nachshon, thank you for joining us. Um, let me send you live. Thank you. Okay.
1: Thank you very much, uh, uh, Professor Yarkov, Yadgar, an old friend, for inviting me to present um, um, this work at your seminar. Thank you for people attending. I mean, I can't see you in person, so this is a slightly odd experience, but I hope that we'll be able to enjoy it nonetheless. And um, so I also uh, uh, want to mention this is a called uh, uh, a joint um, kind of research uh, um, co-authored by myself and Yuval Giovanni, and um, Yuval couldn't be here, unfortunately, so um, I hope that I'll do. OK, so, so, uh, so the, 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 um, the talk is titled Governing the Sacred, Models of Political Toleration in Contested Sacred Sites, and the cover of the new book published by Oxford is uh, right right here on the slide. So um, so this is the TOC. Um, so this is what I'll be presenting today, so brief, explanatory remarks a little bit about the definition from contested sacred sites to fixed sites, then a little bit about methodology, then the models and why do we need them, what do models do for us, and the five models of governance uh, of contested sacred sites, non-interference, divide and separate preference, second-order models, uh, which is status quo and closure, and then some concluding remarks, and then I'll be happy to take any question that you might have. Um, so let's, let's, let's start with some Explanatory uh, remarks. So we have the the topic is contested sacred sites that reside in public spaces or thick sites, and they pose a difficult challenge for states to govern or to manage. They are many times the source of conflict and violence. There's very little material in normative analysis regarding such sites. So, in what this presentation provides, uh, a short version of our book, Governing the Sacred: Political Toleration in Five Contested Sacred Sites. And represent a novel, a novel typology of mapping of the models used to govern such sites within democratic contours via casuistic or, or contextual methodology. I'll explain what that means. And second, and following the broader assessment of the various models. So these are sites located in public spaces that are sacred or significant to at least two groups. These groups compete over ownership, access, usage rights, permissible religious conduct management, allocation of space-time slices, and many other aspects of such sites. Some examples, uh, the Babur Majid Rambambui from Uttar Pradesh, India, the Temple Mount Haram sharif from Jerusalem, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre from Jerusalem, Devil's Tower National Mo- Monument from Wyoming, and others that um, we'll discuss uh, during this talk. So these are some of those sites, right? So on left to right, and uh, so we have the De- Devil's Tower, uh, we have the Babri Majid in the middle, then at the Western Wall, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and the Temple Mount. So these are the sites uh, that correspond to the models in our research. So we suggest to define such sites as thick sites. Um, we follow a little bit Clifford Geertz in his famous thick description kind of approach, but we apply it to sites. So by thick site, we denote a site typically, but not necessarily religious which is loaded with different and incompatible meanings that are attributed to it by different agents. From this agent's view, such meanings are highly significant and consequently, these sites are irreplaceable. So the definition of a fixed site suggests four major features of such sites, being loaded with different meanings, incompatibility, and, and irreplaceability. Uh, centrality and irreplaceability, sorry. So, how do we build the categories and the models? How do we go from a site with specific histories and cultural context to a model? So in in our research, we attempt to move in a context-sensitive fashion from the details of the various case studies, so the sites, to a more general understanding of the category of governance methods of contested sacred sites. We found that the best way to understand and create such categories of the noted governance models is to examine actual case studies. And some examples include, as I mentioned, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, the Babri Majid Rambambui, the Western Wall, and others. We limit our exploration to those models that are within democratic norms, so broadly conceived. So, theocracies and oppressive secularism are excluded. Right? It's not that they're not interested, it's just we couldn't. Um, include them in one research they require different analysis. The models, so why do we need models? So models can be described as simplified, isolating approximations of a given piece of targeted reality. The models, illustrated in a parsimonious way, are approximations or idealizations, a la Max Weber, of much more complex sites, events, and histories. The main test of such modeling is the ability to classify non-as-yet-observed cases into denoted models, using the lessons regarding examined and classified cases and categories to better understand not-as-yet-observed numerous further cases. Models of what? Governance models of contested sacred sites or fixed sites, and which models enter our typology. So we have five models, non-interference, divide and separate, preference, and the two second-order models. I'll explain that concept in, in, a, in a few slides, status quo and closure. So let's begin with the first model. So the first model is non-interference. and In this category, the state does not manage a given contested sacred site in any religiously relevant way or in any way that follows the doctrine of a particular religion. The state or the government maintains law and order, and if the need arises, utilizes an usher function as in a museum or a theater or similar coordination-enabling tool, but nothing else. Religious worship and understandings are left to the believers themselves. The location, physical structure and decor remain as is, with alterations made only on non-religious grounds, fixing the bathrooms. Okay, that's all. This category relies on the broader model of separation of religion and state. However, and this is kind of a general comment on the five models, there is no necessary linkage between a model adopted at a given fixed sites and the general religion state model in the country in which the site resides. Um, the reason is that fixed sites are kind of special locations that require, I would say, specified treatment. Non-interference, so continue. So, the brief example is Devil's Tower in Wyoming, United States. There is no state enforced limits on religious practice, and there's a voluntary ban on climbing the site during the month of June. And there's a sign, so there's a signal, but there's no coercion. The advantages of the model, given heterogeneity of beliefs held by citizens, the state treats all its citizens with equal concern and respect the government um, avoids complex entanglement with religion. It protects, the the model protects religions from the heavy hand of the state. The model avoids factionalism, so there's no picking winners. It's fairly simple to implement and it promotes the free market of religions, which is advantageous for religions and believers. Disadvantages, so the model raises fears of violence or a backlash worry. Now, a backlash worry, is found quite often in the literature, not carefully defined, but we define it as the threat of violence could and perhaps should justify the maintenance of a given restrictive or inegalitarian governance model at a, at a fixed site that is biased in favor of affection that may otherwise resort to violence. Now, we think that there are important reasons to reject the backlash argument, um, sometimes on empirical grounds, sometimes on moral grounds, but it is often indicated and should be Acknowledge when the non model is introduced. Second model, divide and separate. So such a policy includes the following three features. The state recognizes relevant parties and groups. It divides the thick site and separates the different sub-locations via the creation and maintenance of clear and recognized physical or temporal boundaries within such sites in order to avoid collisions between parties. This policy, if you're, if you're looking for kind of legal or moral roots for this model, then the roots are in even-handedness. In even-handed models, the government is expected to provide resources to religious groups as long as it treats all religions in a similar, fair, and equitable manner. There are versions on this in modern literature and currents, uh, University of Toronto, but also in non preferentialism, which is a kind of um, has long history in American political and legal history. Brief example, the Babri Majid Rambui was supposed to be divided into three factions, two Hindu groups, one Muslim group. However, recently, right, uh, uh, the Indian Supreme Court has since decided that the entire site will be given to Hindu groups. The advantages of the model is it avoids direct collisions between religious groups at a given fixed site. Right. It aims to be inclusive and fair. Once decided, unburdens the state from the need to reach further uh, religiously significant decisions. And it, it, it introduces a straightforward Weberian bureaucratic institution. And um, there's a version of this in the Cave of the Patriarch um, uh, in Hebron. And, and there the, you can actually see when you read the protocol, the Weberian bureaucratic kind of translation of of, of this model which is kind of very interesting and it's easy for governments because you can teach it to soldiers on the ground to police officers and so on and um, challenges the, the the government needs to do quite a lot here to identify relevant groups uh, to set the rules of religious practice uh, in a way to limit religious liberty although that is debatable and um, It's an end state solution, that is, it's very, very strict. It does not provide further space for for negotiations. It does exclude unrecognized groups, because there are quite often more groups than slices of uh, of policy to be allocated. Uh, it, It introduces the entanglement of religion and state. So there are also challenges for the model. Third model preference. So in this category, the state identifies with one denomination and provides some preferential treatment to it. In a given fixed site, the state provide the state or the government provides a given group with a preferential standing. This can include possession, usage rights, management, symbolic and other means. So there's a menu, a rich menu of techniques. Preference, however, does not extend to complete exclusion of non selected groups. So, otherwise, it would become the model of closure. Um, the category relies on what we call the religious majoritarian approach. It adopts as its point of departure the claim that there are substantial majorities in some countries that share cultural and religious understandings, which typically reflect long standing traditions. Such majorities, the religious majoritarian approach argues, can legitimately use governmental policies and resources to advance their religious and cultural traditions, as long as such policies do not violate the core liberties and rights of minority groups or non-observant members of these majority groups. If you're interested in further details on the religious modern approach, I have a different article published in Religion which details this approach. One of the main advocates of this approach is David Miller, who used to be at Oxford, so you perhaps recognize the name, and a brief example with regard to fixed sites is the Western Wall in Jerusalem, with the express advantage given to Ulk Orthodox Judaism, for example, in the size of the prayer plaza and in other um, uh, bylaws introduced or that apply to this location. Advantages it, it expresses the religious majoritarian approach, so whatever arguments are that support the RMA will support the preference model. The challenges it is inegalitarian um why is the religious majoritarian approach important there's a big debate about this model it's very difficult to create distinctions between inegalitarianism and impermissible discrimination so the limits to majoritarianism right are at play here it's prone to um i would say bring about dissatisfaction for minority groups uh, especially given the hypersensitivity of thick sites and it entails the entanglement of religion and state, so pattern and repeated real close relations between uh, religion and state. That can be detrimental to both sides, obviously. OK, second-order models. So the two following models, status quo and closure, are second-order models. Second-order models uh, uh, of decisions um, As defined by Cass Anstein, the uh, legal uh, professor from from Harvard, and the late Edna Ullman Margalit, who was a a, a philosophy professor at Hebrew U. Um, They defined it uh, jointly in a a kind of a a famous article. By second order decisions, we refer to decisions about the appropriate strategy for reducing the problems associated with making a first order decision. Second-order decisions does involve the strategies that people use in order to avoid getting into an ordinary decision-making situation in the first instance. So the first-order decision here would be to reach a decision with regard to the veracity of the claims regarding ownership and usage rights in thick sites, right? So this is what second-order models wish to avoid. Okay. you can hear me and, and and see me properly right okay that's I, i'll never get used to this you know impersonal kind of technology okay thank you okay so the first second order models and that is status quo so the status quo model refers to a governmental attempt to maintain an existing state of affairs with regard to conflicting claims to usage rights and of ownership claims raised by competing groups in thick sites. Now, this model, um, unlike the three preceding models, is not anchored in a general approach to religion-state relations. This is a model developed and maintained for the purposes of governing contested sacred sites, most famously with regard to the Christian holy sites in Jerusalem. Advantages. So as you can expect from a second order model, it unburdens the state from functions it is ill-equipped to handle or manage. That is sorting out claims and cattle claims going back hundreds of years regarding rights of possession and usage. That very quickly, uh, the level of information that t- deteriorates. So the status quo model simply says you don't have to worry about any of that, right? Just follow the rules of the status quo. B, the status quo, the status quo That's the the second kind of important advantage, attempts to bring about stability. If the government cannot be recruited to promote a given religious group's demands for larger slices of ownership or usage rights, nor to repress other religious groups at a relevant, sacred, or fixed site, the conflict is expected to become less radical and less violent. Furthermore, the status quo creates a set of clear-cut boundaries and rules to be followed by the relevant parties. The management of a fixed site is transformed into a bureaucratic mission. You you simply follow the rules of the status quo and you ignore questions of holiness, of sacredness, of godly intervention. All that is put aside. So that's an advantage of the status quo. Challenges. So the status quo is not consent-based, right? It's not necessarily fair or even-handed. It usually reflects the results of various past power struggles crystallizing to a state decree at one point. And unavoidably is a substantive decision regarding religion. And it it neglects the religious liberties of unrecognized groups and of individuals not belonging to the recognized groups. It's not completely clear with it whether this is a cynic norm for the achievement of stability. Um, some critiques argue that, that the irreversibility of status quo agreements might cause resentment among groups who are disadvantaged by the status quo. It increases coordination costs, making them almost impassable. And finally, the disagreements regarding the rules of the status quo can be fierce. Um, with regard to the um, to the example of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, right, uh, the status quo is originated in uh, a certain decree issued by the Ottoman Empire, and it was uh, the result indeed of various past power struggles. Has nothing to do with fairness or even fairness and so on and so forth. So the the, the case provides a good example to the uh, to the critique. final model, closure. So the last model to be examined is closure. Uh, So in this model, the government restricts access to and or religious practice in thick sites, usually as a response to severe and often violent clashes among competing groups at the site or because of the high likelihood such clashes are about to occur. Now the model has Um, several variants. First one is is partiality. If the model is partially implemented, that is if the government chooses to restrict access for a limited period or during um, sensitive events, selectively implemented in situations in which the restriction is levied on some but not all groups wishing to worship at a given site, or fully implemented if the site is, is, is permanently closed to all religious factions. Some brief examples, all of them of selective closure, the Babri Majid, Rambam Bui from India. Uh, there was no religious practice allowed save one Hindu faction for a long period. So that's selective closure. The Temple Mount has different versions of selective closure. And, and the main one and the most famous one is the Jewish prayer is banned. And there are occasional limits on Muslim and prayer. And prayer. And the advantages of the closure, which is a little bit of um, of a blunt instrument, I have to say, is avoidance of violence. So you use it when the circumstances are uh, urgent, I would say. Uh, in, in the book, we have a long discussion of the pre- precautionary principle, which is the kind of uh, intellectual device used in such, in such cases. Uh, so avoidance of violence. Um, It unburdens the state from the need to reach more substantial decisions at a given fixed site. And challenges, um, well, violation of religious liberty, you don't allow people to access or to worship at a given site. Aside from really rare cases, it lacks proportionality. It is inegalitarian or even discriminatory in cases of selective um, closure. And there's a debate whether uh, such uh, drastic um, measures are self-defeating, because, um, as you know, if you have young children, taking the way makes it more desirable, right? So it just makes the the wish to uh, access and worship at a given site more urgent. And then the the measure itself can be um, counterproductive and its usages are I would say for a limited period of time. Okay? So this is kind of a blunt instrument to be used in specified circumstances. Okay. Concluding remarks, right? Um, So the advantage of creating the typology of governance model. So it improved understanding of arrangements at particular sites, it enables classification, enables the comparison of different cases and it, I, hopefully it's useful for decision-makers. And we also have, I think, a pluralist conclusion, which I think is somewhat different than the other major book in the, in the field that perhaps in the Q&A, Q&A I, can explain, I can explain more, so that there is no one-size-fits-all model. Rather, the evaluation of the fit between a site and a model must be contextualized. And That's about that. So thank you very much for your attention, and uh, uh, I'm
0: looking forward to your questions. Uh, thank you, Nachshon. Let me just uh, remind our uh, audience, uh, you're most welcome to submit your questions through the Q&A option on your Teams uh, app. Uh, if you prefer not to be identified, just leave it as anonymous or put your name if you want uh, the name to be mentioned until uh, people uh, uh, maybe think about what they have to uh, ask you, and I just uh, ask you to just bring home your conclusion to um, to the, uh, how would I say, immediate experience of the uh, Israeli-Palestinian uh, situation. Um, do you see these models as, nece- as, as potentially solving the tensions uh, surrounding uh, the Temple Mount Haram Sharif and uh, uh, and the Hebron Mosque or Me'arat HaMakhpela? Thank you. Sh-
1: should, I, should I? Sorry, technical question. I'm, I'm, yeah. uh, yes. Should I just stop sharing? Um, I, I,
0: you're not sharing now and it's fine. Uh, it's better just to see you speaking.
1: Okay, so let me see. C- can you? Okay, now I can see you and can you see me and hear me? Yes. Okay, as you can see, I'm insecure with regard to technology. I mean, last time I was at Oxford, we were actually I was at Oxford, and I, we had a beer and a conversation, and this is so alienating. Okay, so to your question <laughs> to your question. Um, so the models are um, um, I'll, I'll put it I'll put it in a different way. So what we had in the literature on contested Secret sites prior to this book, right? we had two kinds of research. One was intensive studies of single cases. Right, so Some of them were fantastic. So Raymond Cohen's book on the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, several books on the Babri Majid. Uh, and they, these are fantastic because they are difficult to, to write. right? And you have to do a lot of research and archives and so on and so forth. They provide lots of information on one single case, usually uh, historians. right? And The second uh, kind of um, Jane is led by Ron Hasner's book, which you probably know, which is kind of deductive in nature. He had a very strong intuition that sacred sites cannot be divided or shared. What you need is kind of a, a Hobbesian sovereign, right? Kind of imposing um, a certain governance model. And you have to be heavy handed. The government has to be, like think of a heavy hand, you know, kind of setting down the rules of the game. And this, that was the state of the, um, Of the field, and we wanted to do something else. First of all, we wanted to better understand a menu of options, and that, and for that, we needed to kind of look at the intensive studies of single cases and to elucidate from them models that can be compared and can be used in different circumstances. And second, uh, as you know, vis-à-vis von Hasner's view. We didn't want to do a deductive work. We wanted to look at extra uh, cases. And I think that our conclusion is slightly more optimistic, because Ronaster is very pessimistic, says you have to have a heavy handed uh, involvement. And that's all there is. Everything else is fantasies by uh, uh, people who really are not realistic enough about about conflicts. And one of the things that I think that may answer to your question is that we now have a, a kind of a wide menu of options mm-hmm. right that can be used and that menu did not exist before so some of the some of the um some of the uh models are more uh, more in the liberty traditions and interference some of them are more uh, um, attuned to more difficult circumstances and closure but they are an improvement because before that, a decision-maker or, or professor writing book did not have any other option. So now at least you can choose. So from that perspective, that's an improvement.
0: I see. Thank you. Uh, we have uh, a question from our friend uh, Matteo Legrenzi. Matteo, are you in uh, Venice now? Good to see you at least uh, online. Matteo is asking, uh, have you looked at examples of uh, transition, from one model to the other. Um, and he adds that it, you're right, it's much better to do it in person in Oxford. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, at one point, hopefully. Um, so there are cases, so there are two kinds of transitions. One is from one government to the next government. And if you, if you look at those cases, then the models are pretty, um, are, 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 um, do not change. So if you think of the of the status quo in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, so the same model, right? Um, the Ottoman Empire, the British Mandate, Jordan, then the state of Israel and, and all those very different countries and uh, ruling countries of the same did not touch the, the model. So the models are pretty robust, right? But there's a reason, right? I mean, what prime minister would want you to amend or change the status quo agreement on the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? That would be interesting thing to see. There are some cases in which the models shift. So for example, in the Babri Majid, uh, there's a change in the model. Right? It used to be uh, selective closure and then the decision was to do even-handedness and now it's becoming, um, um, uh, I would say, um, one-sided ownership. It's kind of a closure in a way. So there are cases like that um it needs to be seen and further researched how to, uh, uh, what influence those changes introduced. What we have now that we didn't have before is we have names for the models that were changed, right? So now we can put them into an empirical or analytical research. So that's a, 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 some kind of a, a fruit
0: of this research, yeah. Um, another question from uh, Marcus, uh, could you say a little more about the application of the model of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre uh, and how it not being a site of interest to Judaism com- uh, competes with the other Jerusalem sites that are sacred also to Judaism?
1: So so that, that's a good question, right? So, so in a way, um, um, one of the things that were interesting to us is the person that holds the keys for the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as a Muslim, right? And um, sometimes when the ruling party has um, has stakes in the side, it becomes more complex, right? And so that's kind of that that's interesting. In the um, when when the British Mandate right took over Jerusalem from the Ottoman Empire, there were real worries from certain uh, uh, factions at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre that the British. Empire would play an active role in how the site is governed. So, in a way, the fact that the uh, the governing uh, party right does not have a stake in a given site is actually actually makes it less complicated to govern because it it's kind of impartial. All that governing party wants is social order and stability, right? So the Governing those sites become really troublesome when when the gov the governing party uh, attempts to shift uh, the model towards uh, the party with which it it, uh, it identifies. Once yeah. that's not the case, everything becomes less um, problematic.
0: Yeah. Uh, Marcus is asking a follow-up question: Does the site of the Last Supper in the old city fit your model? I. I actually was there,
1: but I'm actually not sure about the, the particular site. I'm, I'm willing to have a look and um, see. Usually, the, the most Christian sites and also um, uh, in, in, in the old city in Jerusalem fall under the status quo agreement, um, uh, but I'm not sure about that one. I can check.
0: All right, Let's move on to uh, another question. Um, the question is from an anonymous uh, uh, participant. You, you approach sacred sites without contextualizing their historical or socio-political conditions. The problem in Al-Aqsa or the Abraham Mosque is that uh, they are under settler colonial occupation. How you treat these sites must account for the simple fact that Israel is a racist occupier. How do your models account for the colonial reality? So I think
1: what's interesting about about the governance models of contested sacred sites is that they are compatible with many different regimes and kinds of government. So the the example I go back to all the time is the Church of Dollar Sepulcher. So governments, regardless of their identity, usually treat those sites very carefully because they're, they're, they're explosive, right? People fight wars about those sites and they uh, can be used to, um, um, bring about lots of social unrest. So the the, the general mode of uh, governance and the way those sites are governed are usually completely different, right? And I think in the Cave of the, the Patriarch, that's actually a good example, because there's the divide and separate arrangement taking place. And actually, there's quite a lot of cooperation between Jews and Muslims in, in the, cave, in the uh, cave of the Patriarchs. So I think these two things are, uh, um, uh, should be thought of as two separate issues.
0: Yeah. Right. Uh, thank you, uh, Narshan, If I can uh, again take the prerogative and ask you uh, uh, another question: um, To what degree do you think uh, the models you present? It, it goes back actually to Mateo's language. Uh, a question. I'm sorry uh, concerning transition. Uh, so, to what degree are these models, in a sense, bound to? Uh, what you called earlier uh, a, Hobbesian, a Hobbesian concept of sovereignty—are these questions solved or seen differently in different understanding of sovereignty? Let's say it was the empire uh, uh, thinking about this uh, differently than um, the nation-state? So, um,
1: so the short answer would be no, because the same the same concerns about those sites repeat themselves over and over again and when you read some of the literature on contested sacred sites from many different um sites many different periods and many different um uh, governments and democratic and non-democratic and, and we, we went over many such documents in the indian context in the uh, uh israeli-palestinian context in the british modern context we read many reports and many and course decisions, and all of them kind of shared the worry that, that those sites are um, can be a serious source of social discontent and social disorder. And so they were very careful about, about how to, to deal with them. One interesting thing that we found is some of the um, most interesting models were not top down. So unlike what not thought, but they were um, um, bottom-up. So some of the most interesting arrangements actually came from um, local, I would say, initiatives to how to approach those sites. And when we look at them, we thought about Eleanor Ostrom's work on the tragedy of the commons. When, when she said that sometimes governmental involvement is unnecessary and even harmful, the government is far away, doesn't understand the local conditions, local people can, you know, reach certain agreements. And when you look at some of the um, most promising solutions, there are bottom-up, for example, the um, voluntary ban over climbing at the um, Devil's Tower, right? That's a local initiative. So people want to climb it. But it's sacred. It's a sacred indigenous location. But the uh, the indigenous people did not want the government to impose a ban because they said that that would not express proper respect towards our tradition. The way to express proper respect towards our tradition is if someone understands our tradition and changes here his or her behavior accordingly. So the issue, of the voluntary ban, and we look at the data of how many cl- how many persons climbed the, um, the um, Devil's Tower after the, uh, the ban was introduced and the numbers, as far as we saw, went down considerably. So there was no need for the um, Hobbesian-Hasnerian kind of heavy hand. And, and this was for us kind of an encouraging perspective, right? And it would not solve all um, conflicts over sacred sites but it's a helpful mechanism. Mm -hmm. And we have a whole classification of those mechanisms, signaling and nudging and ushering and so on and so forth. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, very interesting. I I just want to comment that uh, when you think of uh, bottom-up reaction, you can also, well, unfortunately, the Israeli-Palestinian case also offers you examples of where individuals try to force the hand of the sovereign to uh, uh, to do this or that. uh, even just by uh, massacring uh, worshippers at the, the Abraham Mosque, uh, the terrorist was trying to force a change that would necessarily be a top-down change after uh, his, uh, I guess, uh, individual uh, act. But let me move forward to uh, another question from uh, from Melissa Simon. Could you maybe expand on the issue of violence well not too far in your eyes what is the interplay between the history of the site the model and the religious importance which the site holds are other models which generate higher levels of violence or is this impossible to decipher so a lot depends on so that's a good question so
1: a lot depends on the uh, <laughs> on the perspective of the decision makers so um, when you look at how the how the decisions uh, for those sites were uh, were reached right so that so, so the some of them are a little bit random like the the, the, the status quo at the church of the holy sepulcher was uh, almost random the ottoman empire had certain uh, concrete interests and that was the the, the agreement reached the uh, the decision reached in 17 17- uh, 57 and and a few years before that uh, they, they reached a different decision so there was a little bit of uh, randomness um, um, which we can find at the moment in which a model was decided and once a model was decided uh, it is not um easily changed so for example another example in 1967 when Israel um, um the of was decided on the uh, governance model, which is preference for the Western Wall. The, uh, it was almost, almost by random because the, the, the prime minister, which is from Levi uh, issued a state decree allocating the, the uh, governance uh, over the Christian holy sites and, and other holy sites to the religious communities, right? And then the uh, certain rabbis, uh, um, Um, took that decision and ran with it and applied it to the Western Wall. So sometimes those decisions are almost, uh, I would say, unplanned. Uh, What is interesting, however, is once they are decided upon, they're not easily changed, and uh, a lot of importance is attributed to those those governance models, and it's sometimes frustrating for a scholar, because when you look back at the uh, historical kind of line, leading to that decision and you read and you say to people and uh, that this happened to me and Yuval in talks and we say, well, the region of the of the of this agreement is of that decision is not that impressive on epistemological grounds or normative grounds. And, and the response that, that doesn't do any change in the world. People just say, well, we don't care how it started, but now it's really important. So, OK, fine. There's also something if you want to. I mean, this is, you're in England, right? So Edmund Burke said something about the importance about about traditional institu- traditional institutions having a power and logic of their own, and don't think you're just you're smart enough in order to kind of redesign everything from scratch, right? So maybe there's a point of humility here as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a wonderful uh, 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 conclusion, concluding remark on the <laughs> merit of uh, tradition. <laughs> Uh, I don't see any other questions. Uh, Can I ask the audience if you have a question to raise it now? Uh, And if uh, not, I think it would be a wonderful uh, opportunity to thank you, Rahshan, for this uh, interesting presentation, and uh, an encouragement to rethink uh, some of the existing models in our minds uh, regarding not just sacred sites. Um, uh, Thank you so much for this uh, fascinating talk.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you.